like to consider for just a few moments together one of life's fundamental challenges for us as the followers of Jesus Christ. I think you'll agree with me that as God's people, we struggle to find our joy and our rest in God, not merely in favorable circumstances. We struggle to wholly trust God, not trust in the ways and means by which we hope to change our unfavorable circumstances. We know this is not right, but we obsess over our trials and anxiously scurry about trying to fix our circumstances. And honestly, one of the reasons for our anxiety is that God, it seems, is so excruciatingly slow. Or maybe even absent. We wait, but He does not show up to fix things. We pray, but He does not seem to answer. We attempt to trust Him, but our trials only seem to increase. And somebody's got to do something. And so we struggle with the temptation to substitute a trust, a rest, and joy in God with anguished frustration over our circumstances and desperate attempts to find ways and means by which we can solve them, fix them change our lot. This common struggle we bring to church, and here we are, singing the praises of God. The world might look at us and say, what exactly is wrong with you? Why do you gather to sing to a God who isn't there? Why do you spend your time in that and not fixing your problems, your troubles. Don't sing these silly songs. Get busy about fixing your life and what's off track. Well, for those who come as the followers of Jesus Christ, we come into this place with those trials. Many times, as many and similar trials that the world faces, we gather with Christ's church to sing God's praise and God's Spirit witnesses with our spirit that even in the midst of the trial and the challenge, this is exactly where we should be. This is exactly as it should be. A singing church in the midst of a fallen world. No matter how many lies Satan whispers, no matter how frustrating and sorrowful our trials may be, this we know. God is to be praised and exalted. This we know. In fact, in some measure, praising God is a vital part of winning the battle in a troubled world. Allow those thoughts to kind of simmer on the stovetop of your mind for now. We'll come back to them, Lord willing, in a few moments. But I invite you to Psalm 33. Considering these ideas and bringing them to the table as we seek to eat this Word, to feed on this feast that is here for us in Psalm 33. It starts with a call to praise God. And then... It delivers a powerful, poetic defense of why we should do so and where it should all end. 
And where the psalm begins and where it ends is significant to us. Psalm 33 equips us, on the one hand, to strive for trust and joy and rest in God in a fallen world. On the other hand, Psalm 33 works to stabilize the soul and to chase away our faithless focus on favorable circumstances as all-important. The psalm reads, Shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. Praise befits the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. Make melody to Him with the harp of ten strings. Sing to Him a new song. Play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. Why? For the word of the Lord is upright, and all His work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. By the word of the Lord the heavens were made. And by the breath of His mouth all their hosts. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deeps in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of Him, for He spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of His heart to all generations break center. Hinge. Here it is. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. The people whom He has chosen as His heritage. The Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of man. From where He sits enthroned, He looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them all and observes all their deeds. The king is not saved by his great army. The warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation and by its great might it cannot be, it cannot rescue. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear Him. On those who hope in His steadfast love, that He may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. The close. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield, for our heart is glad in Him because we trust in His holy name. Let Your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us even as we hope in You. So we read this call of praise to the Lord in these first three verses. To shout for joy to the Lord, for praise befits the upright. The Hebrew word translated here, shout, in verse 1 is not restricted to shouting as we define the term. It's a call to lift up one's voice in full-throated, joyful praise, whatever that means in the particular setting. It could be translated, sing aloud. Sing aloud. 
It's a bold word. The psalmist has no interest here in mousy, mumbly, muted, apathetic, bashful singing. Raise your voices in boisterous, exuberant expressions of joy to God. He calls us to this as an assembly. It's a call, in fact, to the righteous. That is, those whose lives are aligned with God. I don't think that it means that those who are not aligned with God, particularly as God's people, should be quiet. But it's saying that how beautiful it is that when our lives line up with the character of God and the task of exalting in His presence. Why is it? Because praise befits the upright. Why is it beautiful? Because it befits us. That is, it's beautiful. It is proper. It is beautiful and proper for those who live upright lives to read their Bibles. It's proper. It's befitting to us to love our families. It's proper to work hard, to live with integrity, to tell the truth. It's proper. It's befitting for us to help the weak. To weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice is fitting. I'd like us to picture this. We gather as Eden Baptist Church on this Lord's Day. It pleases God as fitting and beautiful when we lift up our voices and sing. When we praise His name, it fits who we are, synchronizing with who He is. Sacrifices of loud praise to God in assembly bring honor to Him. And I think then that the unbelievers who come in among us should conclude at least this, that we mean what we sing. We sing with enthusiasm. We lift up our voices strongly and we announce the glories of God as Savior and King. I tell this story, I've told it a number of times, and I'm going to just keep telling it because every once in a while this church needs to hear this story. I hope it is never forgotten. It was a great day. John Pratt and I were at a clergy meeting in Savage, and I mean we were with whoever was clergy in Savage at this meeting. And one of the the clergy members spoke about a seminary class that they took and uh, required a visit to a church that was not of their faith communion. This was a, a woman who had... denied the gospel. She didn't just not believe it. She knew she didn't believe it. But she she said, it's very surprising to us, she said, I always went to the Baptist church. Sat up and said, why is that? You know what she said? Because Baptists know how to sing. I didn't think I could get any happier than that moment. (laughs) Baptists know how to sing. Yeah, we got something to sing about. But I got a little happier when the woman sitting next to me said under her breath in whisper tone, and preach. I was ready to go to heaven. (laughs) That was great. But that's the way it should be. Have you ever been in a church service where you feel embarrassed to sing out? You're like, oh, i got to tone it down here. This isn't our church. This is a different church. I've I've been in that spot, especially at funerals, weddings, and you kind of look around and go, we're supposed to sing, right? And you just have to keep it quiet. May that not be the case here. 
May that not be the case among us. May we know how to sing, to lift our voices. May we resolve that the unconverted who visit us will know that we sing for joy to the Lord. That doesn't demand cartwheels in the aisle, but it does call for full-throated singing. Nor is this everything that the Bible would have to say about singing. It's not a complete idea. I don't think that he's calling for this type of exuberance in a song of lament, for instance. There the tone may not be appropriate. But there will be times when we praise the name of the Lord where we should let it go. Lift up our voices. This last song that we sang is perfect for that. He is our delight and our reward. We don't whisper that. We announce it. We sing it out as loudly as we can appropriately. Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. Make melody to Him with harp of ten strings. Sing to Him a new song. Play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts or with joyful, exuberant song. The boisterous, ringing words of praise from God's people is to be accompanied by instruments. Maybe accompanied by instruments. I don't think it's saying that it has to be accompanied by instruments. Not that God is demanding instrumentation at every gathering any more than He is demanding that we always use some type of string instrument that has ten strings. Nine's not enough, eleven, too much. That's not what He's saying, clearly. Just saying, use an instrument. Instrumentation can enhance the expressions of praise from God's people. Instrumentation requires a significant investment of time and money and attention to detail. Ask any parent. Instruments are expensive. At least the kind that you'd use in church. I know you can get a kazoo for pretty cheap and seen a guy play a saw i'm not quite sure what's going on with that but the instruments we use in church they're expensive ask the manufacturer they're all moaning that they don't get enough for what these things really cost purchasing musical instruments is costly and training children to play them skillfully takes long hours of practice and patience To play a new song requires labor and innovation. Here probably the new song connected, as most commentators seem to think, that it is a fresh response to the new works of God. That is that God continues to work among His people and so there is a new, fresh expression of praise because we see the acts of God anew. Such financial investment, time commitment, and focus on excellence is absolutely fitting and beautiful in God's sight. The ideal here is putting together freshness, skill, and fervor. Those don't always go together. Freshness, skill, and fervor. How rich we are as a congregation to see this truth, see the truth of this message and to put it into practice. This is God's grace. It has taken time in some places through the centuries for the church to get here, at least parts of the church. How rich we are with this heritage. Let me quote from Thomas Aquinas, a Roman Catholic theologian. He said, Our church does not use musical instruments to praise God. 
that she may not seem to Judaize. You see what he's saying? This was for the Jews. That was elementary worship. We're not going to fail there. We don't use instruments. Before him, putting it even more bluntly, and by the way, Aquinas and Chrysostom have great things to say, particularly Chrysostom, but just not this one. I have all kinds of things I've quoted from that are wonderful, but he said it was only permitted to the Jews, that is, using instrumentation and worship, was only permitted to the Jews as sacrifice was. For the heaviness and grossness of their souls. That is, they were dull. They, they were elementary in their religious expression. And so God gave them music, musical instruments to use. Why? God condescended to their weakness because they were lately drawn off from idols. So the fact they were just coming out of idolatry where instrumentation was used, he assumes, to some degree, God gave them this concession. But now instead of organs, we may use our own bodies to praise Him with all. I think here organs probably speaking not of, like, well, clearly not speaking of the organs we think of, but just some means, some instrument. We may use our bodies to praise Him with all. We are at the higher level of spiritual experience because we don't use instrumentation. I think both of these immensely gifted Capable theologians got this really, really wrong. This is no concession to the Jewish nation. This is God's call to His people. Praise Him by putting the time and the attention and the effort into even instrumentation to support the singing of the church. God teaches us here, I think, that instrumentation pleases Him. And I think we should always be thankful for those who labor among us in music or those who lead us in singing. There are choirs and there are individuals who stand and sing having put in time and effort to prepare, to help us and lead us in the worship of the Lord. And there are instruments that come along that spend a lot more time and effort than we probably recognize to help enhance and encourage the singing of this church, the music that is here. We owe a debt of gratitude to all of those who labor musically with instrumentation. This is no nice little addition to our services. It's a labor of love. It enhances our praise. It brings joy to God and it should bring joy to us. Any instrument can be played. Any instrument can be played so as to detract from the singing church. And we want very much to avoid that. The musical instruments here are accompaniment with the singing of God's people. But every instrument of requisite quality can be faithfully employed in the praise of the Lord. And we would go to a passage such as this to indicate this. Sing to Him, make melody to Him with harp of ten strings, play on the strings with loud shouts accompanying that work of the people of God. The reasons to praise the Lord. Why? This call to exuberant praise. Why do we praise Him? You notice the word for there in verse 4. For, here is the reason, number one, He is the Creator to whom we owe our lives. 
He's the Creator to whom we owe our lives. That's a reason to sing and to praise Him. He really is that. For the Word of the Lord is upright and all His work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. That's in a sense a preliminary entrance into the discussion of creation which is to come, but the creative word that flows from the Lord flows here with moral beauty. So first of all, verses 4 and 5, His creative word flows with moral beauty. That is, God speaks only what is morally upright. Everything He does is steadfastly faithful. He loves righteousness and justice. Right principles applied in right ways. Because of who God is, Speaking His creative word infuses creation with His steadfast love. That Hebrew word, said, Covenant, loyalty to His people. This is the God that we praise. And I wonder, in light of this, what circumstances of life are weighing down upon you? What is God not fixing? What fills you with anxiety to find ways and means to change your circumstances? Know this. The steadfast, loyal, covenant-keeping love of God flows through every atom of this universe. Know this. God's steadfast love is flowing down upon your head in the midst of your every trial. It's not missing you. With absolute justice on the one hand and with steadfast, loyal love on the other, God's Word sustains this universe every second of every day over every inch of creation. There is no way on earth that love misses you. Ever. As God's children, we can make this claim. His creative Word flows with moral beauty The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. Secondly, His creative Word generates the universe. Verse 6, By the Word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of His mouth all their hosts. Their hosts, that is the innumerable stars and planets. And I could lay out the numbers here. Just put a whole bunch of zeros on the screen. I can't figure it out. How big the universe is. How many stars there are. How many galaxies there are. It makes no sense to our minds. We can't grasp it all. In fact, I, was, I, I knew someone who knew a couple. The, the, the guy was a University of Minnesota professor in science, and his live-in girlfriend uh, tried to put up with him. And he would come home. He became obsessed with the immensity of the universe. And so night after night he'd come home and explain to her a new way in which the universe was so immense, she finally just said, I'm done, and left him. Now I don't know, there probably were some other reasons, I'm assuming, but, she, but the point, the, 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 the report was, she couldn't handle it anymore. Just couldn't wrap her mind around it, and living with a guy obsessed with this, we can't get it. It's so big, it is so vast, it is so great, and God spoke it into being. He spoke. It's His creative Word that brings it into being. The world is the work. Let me, I think I have this, yes. Uh, Spurgeon said this. I, I just think it cuts through right to the heart of the reality. 
This is the most rational account that was ever given of the creation of the world. The world is the work of a self-efficient will. And it is this principle alone that can account for its creation. A self-efficient will. There is in everything that we see purpose and design and even much beauty. There is a will, a purpose that calls it into being. And as you chase that down, it comes to the ultimate cause, to the ultimate architect, and to the creator. There's no more rational explanation. How God did this, of course, is up for debate and discussion and will not be solved in our lifetime. How he did this would be ridiculous for us to think that we could ever entirely determine and know. But what we can know is what he tells us as his little children. It is my word that brought it into being. This is the God we worship. This is the God we praise. This creator God who, verse 7, just as one example, gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deep in storehouses, the deep in, that is the, the oceans and the deep currents. He puts them all in a place bottles them up, so to speak, pulls them together, separating them from the dry earth. Let all the earth, verse 8, fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of Him as the Creator. Why? Verse 9, for He spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. And while I would say we do not know how God did this, and while there is much debate, you don't have the freedom to cross out verse 9. You can't do that. He spoke and it came to be. That we must know. And when we cross that line out, when many, many Christians are doing so, it's not how it happened. That's not how it started. It's not the Word of the Lord that brought about creation. We begin to shrink our image of God. Our praise is weakened and our lives are weakened. Just know this. While we can't figure out its immensity, while we can't figure out all of how it happened and how God did it, we know this. He spoke and it came to be. And if the Bible is the most read book in the history of humanity, I would assume Genesis chapter 1 is the most read section of that book in all of humanity. What God says time and time again is that He spoke. It is His self-efficient will that brought the world into being. And so there's only one Honorable response, verse 8, and that is to fear the Lord. Not in the sense of a timidity, but in the sense of a reverence, of an honor, of awe. Let all the inhabitants of the world indeed stand in awe of Him, for He is the Creator of all. Now verses 10 and 11 couple thematically with what follows, verse 12 and following, but to honor the arrangement of the Hebrew text we included here under God as Creator, perhaps just beginning to prepare us moving forward. 
but in some sense thematically it goes with what follows. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. This Creator, of course He can do that. Of course He can. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of His heart to all generations. He's the Creator of it all. It's His purpose that brought it into being. It is His purpose that will always rule. There's no one that's going to stand up against His counsel. The people God created have the power to disregard the Lord, and they do, but God is never frustrated. He sovereignly, rather, frustrates the counsel of the nations. And while for His part, verse 11, His counsel always stands. The plans of His heart to all generations. So He is the Creator to whom we all owe our lives. Second reason to praise Him, He is the King to whom we all must align our lives. He's the King to whom we must all align our lives. Verse 12. And verse 12 is in some sense the center of the psalm thematically. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom He has chosen as His heritage. His sovereign choice of a people to rule, verse 12, You may wonder, how do I know if I'm part of those people? The nation whose God is the Lord is not just saying any nation who chooses to put God first. It's it's a reference to Israel, to His chosen people in this context. The people whom He has chosen as His heritage. There's no way of taking that in the Psalter other than to refer to Israel. How do we know if we're part of that people? Part of the people that He has chosen as His own? For us, of course, we're on a different page. For we're further on in salvation history. For us, there is the understanding that Jesus Christ's death pays the price, the penalty of our sin. That His resurrection power is given to us who believe in Him so that our sins are forgiven and our home with Him in eternity is secured. I know that I am part of the elect people of God as I choose to obey, to trust, to put my hope in this gospel, this good news about Christ crucified and risen. But blessed are those people whom He has chosen as His heritage. Blessed are those whose God is Yahweh, whose God is the Lord. Believer, you are God's heritage. That means whatever you're facing, He is not going to forget you. He is not going to forsake you. And you can know that He will never be thwarted in His purposes in history. People can go against His plan, but no one can alter it. This world is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. And that steadfast love, believer in Jesus Christ, you who have come to new birth in Jesus, that steadfast love is on you. It flows to you day after day, moment by moment, and it is our sustaining strength. Blessed is that people. The Lord looks down, verse 13, He looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of man. From where He sits enthroned, He looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them all and observes all their deeds. This is our Lord. 
So we see his sovereign choice of a people in verse 12 and his sovereign oversight of all people in verses 13 and following. Think on these words, 13 through 15. He looks down from heaven. He sees everyone. He sits enthroned. He looks at all the inhabitants of the earth. He fashions the hearts of them all. Does that sound like a God who's forgotten about us? Does that sound like God doesn't see or has nothing to do with the circumstances of our lives? He sees everything and He fashions the hearts of people. God is not the author of sin. That's not what it's saying. He is not culpable for the evils people commit. But God is so sovereignly, so intimately involved in all that comes to pass that He works out everything according to the purpose of His will, Ephesians 1.11. And so involved is He that the Bible does not blush to say that God hardens the heart of the rebellious. The rebellious are not sovereignly out there saying, listen, God, you're bigger than me, you're greater than me, but I'm going to do my thing and you're not going to be able to touch me. I will be sovereign over me. And God says, it's laughable. I mold your heart. I harden it. I soften it. Verse 16, the king is not saved by his great army. Notice the words great here. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation and by its great might it cannot rescue. The war horse is what? It's a means to an end. And perhaps the single greatest asset in ancient warfare. Would you want to stand up to a running horse? It just isn't a good thing to try no matter how much armor you have on. These things were powerful beasts in that time. They are now. But in warfare of that time, in that ancient setting, they were almost invincible, it seemed. It was a great asset. But a great army, great strength, and great might of horses can never thwart the sovereign purposes of God. In the history of warfare, no invading army has ever gone undefeated. Yet every one of them thought they might. All the saber-rattling got them to say, we're going to be the one that doesn't lose. They forget the sovereign purposes of God. He raises one nation up and He brings another down. Yes, He's raised this nation up and He'll bring it down. Barring the return of Christ, this nation will crumble into nothing eventually. The nations can only rely on the superiority of their military strength and their technological advantage over their enemy. That is always an estimate and always subject to factors outside of the nation's power. The Persian army of Darius outnumbered Alexander the Great and his army ten to one. And Alexander the Great won. He crushed the Persian army. Alexander the Great conquered more territory more rapidly than any king in history. He ran over Persia. 
before they knew what hit them. And then he got hit by a mosquito and died at age 32 or by bacteria in his food or 45 other possibilities. But he died laying in bed at 32 years of age at the height of strength and power and he got brought down. He thought he couldn't be defeated. God said otherwise. 1941, Nazi Germany invaded Russia. Their goal, to annihilate Russia and to use the resources of that rich nation to build up Germany. Hitler sent, this is unimaginable, he sent 134 divisions at full fighting strength and 73 supporting divisions poised to deploy at first notice. Four million Germans were involved in that invasion. They brought 600,000 vehicles. They brought 600,000 horses. Millions of Russians died. But things Hitler couldn't control started to fall down the page in bullet points, one after another after another, and he failed. Every moment of history is steered by the sovereign hand of God. Every moment, no matter how big or small, unless we think God only concerns Himself with these massive movements of mankind. Verse 18, Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear Him. This Creator God, this Sovereign King, to whom we must all align our lives, He sees you. His eye is on those who fear Him, on those who hope in His steadfast love. They look to His steadfast love. They're looking with faith, with hope, with longing toward this love. Every moment of history is steered by the sovereign hand of God. And God, though He does not move as quickly as we sometimes wish, we should never conclude that He is asleep. His eye is on those who fear Him those who hope in His steadfast love, verse 19, that He may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. I'll add whatever else you want. It's a poem. But in famine, in trial, in heartache, in loss, in difficulty, in suffering, He will keep them. He will deliver them. He doesn't show up when we want Him to but He shows up exactly when it's right. This is the God that we fear. Again, this word fear, a reverent loyalty, a hope in His steadfast love. It anticipates deliverance. It looks to God. It looks to His face for salvation. And God is never impressed with those who look to all kinds of other things. And throw Him in the mix. God longs for our utter devotions. 
our longing as we look to him and see him as the source of steadfast, loyal love. The conclusion of the psalm, verse 20. Now this is not just tagged on, that's not important. In some sense, this is uh, all important to the psalm itself. He says then at the end, Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. For our heart is glad in him because we trust in his holy name. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us even as we hope in you. Notice the word, verse 20, waits. This is the outcome when we grasp God's creative and sovereign power. He alone is our help. He alone, that that help there doesn't mean he's, he's, He's the help. Like He's our servant to do what we want. It means help in the sense of He's the deliverer. He's the one that comes in with the supporting army and takes over. He's our help. He is our protector. He alone is the source of our gladness, verse 21. We trust Him. Can you trust Him with what you're going through? Can we trust Him whatever comes? He's the Creator who spoke the universe into being by His Word. He's the Sovereign Lord who watches over all people, forms every heart, and sees His people. Puts His eye upon us. We can trust Him. So the psalmist ends, verse 22, with this prayer. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us even as we hope in You. We see there the confident hope, the anticipation, the waiting, the dependence. Lord, I hurt. It's a challenging world, but my face is upward to you, and in you I hope. I know you're a God of steadfast love. This is where it ends. When we get who God is and why he is to be exalted, We learn to shed off the natural discontent, the anxiety, the agitation that comes from life in a fallen world. And there's much of it. There's tough circumstances. And in tough circumstances, what we're bent to do is to naturally seek ways and means to fix them. Impatient for God to act, we want our problems to go away, we want things to work out the way we like them to work out, And we go at it trying to change our life. And not to say that we should sit back and do nothing necessarily. But this psalm reminds us to lift our eyes and to find joy and hope and trust and gladness in God, our Creator and Sustainer and the Sovereign Ruler of human history. And we can do that by His grace. The point is, we have a big God. A big God in whom we can trust. A big God to look to and one who loves us with his loyal love. I'd like to draw attention here as we look at this conclusion and see all that's happened in this psalm. Notice that the psalm, this psalm that ends with patient, trusting hope in God begins with a call to praise. This is no intended equation, I don't think. But it is noteworthy that praise proceeds restful, patient hope. And I draw this out because I think we see this fairly routinely in the Psalter. Look for it. It's an important truth to grasp. We're geared to think that hope always comes first, and then we praise. Hope anticipates certain results, and the realization of those results generates praise. Makes perfect sense. In other words, once the outcome I'm seeking God to provide is attained, then I praise God. 
He answered my prayer. It's the stuff of many testimonies. I was in this trouble. I sought God. He answered. I praise Him. And that's good. It makes perfect sense. But the Psalter teaches us, this psalm and all of the psalms, and many other psalms, the Psalter teaches us never to hold our tongues when God Never to hold our tongues when God seems too distant to hear. There's beauty in this. Don't hold your tongue when God seems too distant to hear. That takes work. That takes skill. That takes discipline. Because when God isn't listening, we want to curl up in a ball and forget Him. Or we want to walk on and go somewhere else. We want to find the circumstances that we can fix. And God's not helping me right now. He must be busy. I'm not going to go there. Never hold your tongue when God seems too distant to hear. The Psalter teaches us to fill our throats with praise, even in what may seem the emptiness of a vast wilderness, lift up your voice and sing. This is no call to play act. It's not to go through the motions. This is a call to calibrate our lives, not to a life that demands evidence in search of faith, but to a life of faith in search of evidence. Praise is fueled by seeing God's hand a blessing But learn this as well, follower of Jesus. Our praise can sometimes fuel our faith. And that's this day. And that's this gathering. And that's why we sing. As I've said too many times, probably, it's not to appease the musical types among us to satisfy them with the fact that the church has some music going on. We come here to sing in order to live. We come here to sing because it tempers the heart. It equips us to walk in this fallen and broken world. An act of labor of resting and trusting in God in whom we find our joy and our song. It's an act of labor. And supporting that praise, supporting this praise project week after week by God's grace, our church members who come together to sing to one another, announcing, God is trustworthy. His steadfast love will never let you slip. He will not falter. He will not fall. He will not fail. His steadfast love endures forever. His steadfast love, no matter what the storms of life may set upon our frail ship, will pull us through to harbor every single time. We sing to help each other remember that in part. To teach that to one another. To bolster one another. 
in these realities. Rather than anxiously seeking solutions to fix our challenges, may God teach us to wait on Him, to seek His face, to be at peace with wherever providence puts us, and to sing for joy to the Lord in the darkness. Such songs are not silly. They are life-sustaining. They are rest-enhancing. They are truth-confirming. They are a reality check that God's steadfast love will never fail. Ever. And so we sing. Lord, we pray that You'd help us to sing with renewed vigor as we have sung together today that You are our delight and our reward. I pray that that song would settle down into our souls, would affect who we are as we walk with Christ, and would even create thirst for those who know not Jesus as Savior, for those that have not put their personal faith in Christ, turning from their sin and embracing Him as their Lord and Savior. I pray that you would use the singing of your church with hearts tuned to who you are, rejoicing actively with alert minds and boisterously lifting up their voices to announce that You are great and greatly to be praised. I ask that this ministry among us, this work that we do together, would sanctify and purify this church. And we pray in a larger way for all of your churches that gather in faithfulness to praise your name today, that there you would find it fitting and beautiful and gain glory for your great name. Lord, now as we sing soon, and as we sing in the days ahead as you give us life together, I pray that you would infuse the songs of this church with faith and hope and love, with trust in You as our steadfast, loyal, sovereign, creator, sustainer, and Lord. May the music of this church always serve to that end. And we know that it's not just the music. It's the heart that we bring. May we lift up our voices as an act of obedience and as an act of worship as we nurture one another in the faith and as we do what we were created to do, to bring glory and praise to your name. And as we deal with the trials and the challenges of life, I pray that this singing would change us and would turn us not into anxious warriors seeking solutions to fix our problems, but that it would turn us into those who wait with glad heart. Do this work in us, we pray, in the name of our Savior.